So the second Bible reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 to 20. That can be found on page 1,197 on some of the Pew Bibles. So those are just under the seats there. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. But God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who commits sexual, sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your body. Well, the topic tonight is same-sex attraction or homosexuality. Now, just like every week in this series, it is something that we need to think rightly about as Christians. Be formed by what God teaches us, rather than how society tries to influence us. It's an important distinction. We want to be formed by God, not influenced by society. And so how are we meant to think about same-sex attraction? Well, we want clarity, don't we? We want to be respectful, and we do want genuine understanding. Because perhaps, I'm sure, many of you would have family or friends who are same-sex attracted. And I suspect in a group this size, if the statistics are right, there are bound to be at least a handful of you tonight who are struggling alone in this. And so in speaking about this topic, I do speak so with humility and deep sensitivity and sympathy. Because this is not my experience, I can't imagine how deep and difficult the internal struggles might be. And so I do not want to make light of that struggle if it is a struggle for those of you who do struggle. And I suspect for many of you, the rest of you here, same-sex attraction might be something that you really do not understand, you can't make sense of because it is not your experience. And so my encouragement to you tonight is that you too also show deep sympathy 
sensitivity and respect when we do speak about same-sex attraction. But now having said that, though it is not my personal experience and struggle, my job as a pastor is to share with you not what I think, you really do not want to know just what I think, but to share with you what God teaches on this matter, to interpret our experiences as varied as they are, as different as they are, to interpret our experiences through the lens of the Bible and not the other way around. We don't interpret our experiences, the Bible, from our experiences. We interpret our experiences through the lens of the Bible. And so I won't be speaking politically tonight, but I'm wanting to teach about this biblically. And it is my hope and my deep prayer that all of us tonight will have greater clarity on this important topic, but really to have genuine love and care and respect, and also to find hope and comfort in the only place there is to find that. And so how are we meant to think about same-sex attraction? Now, this is an extremely confusing topic, not just today, but it has been for quite a long time. And it's partly, in fact, largely because of how public perception has changed so much and so quickly. The public perception has changed tremendously, even just over the last decade. Now, just to give you a brief history, it wasn't actually too long ago, not very long ago at all, in fact, that homosexual activity was something that people saw as shameful. It wasn't very long ago. It was seen as very shameful. And so as the euphemism goes, it was kept in a closet. And of course, this came not just from religious moral expectations. It came from cultural expectations as well, from many cultures around the world. It was a cultural thing, but also it was a religious moral thing. And so it was shameful and, in a sense, kept in a closet. And so if you have a look at the nations around the world that have legalized same-sex marriage today, only 25 nations out of the 195 or so countries, the vast majority of the nations in Asia and in Africa have not followed the West. The vast majority, and so that's the vast majority of the world in their population. But then homosexuality, what has happened in history, it, it was that it moved from a moral category, a moral or cultural issue, to something that was in fact seen at one stage as a mental disorder. And so in this publication, which is the first diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders, this was put out by the American Psychiatric Association. It's like the Bible for mental health. In the first edition, in 1952, homosexuality was designated a sociopathic personality disturbance. That was how it was seen. So before that, it was seen as a moral thing, and then it was seen at this time uh, a mental thing. That developed a bit more, and in the second edition, in 1968, homosexuality was then designated a sexual deviation, which still needs to be treated mentally. At that time, in the 60s, it was still seen as a mental disorder. But then that happened during the same time as the gay rights movement. There was this big riot in New York City, the Stonewall riots. But before that time, those who claimed to be same-sex attracted really just accepted the medical view that it was a medical, uh, mental disorder that needs to be treated. But of course, things changed, perception changed. 
and it changed quite quickly. The gay activists confronted the American Psychiatric Association around the 60s and 70s. And so in 1973, it was decided then that homosexuality as a mental disorder be eliminated from that, that manual. And so in the third edition in 1987, it was completely removed, no longer a mental disorder. And because it was no longer at this time now, no longer a moral issue, nor a medical disorder, homosexuality was then decriminalised. It was in fact illegal even in Australia just a few decades ago for, being, for actively being homosexual. And so in Australia, the sodomy, uh, sodomy laws, they were repealed uh, from 1976 to 1997. At different states at different times. Victoria, it was repealed in 1981. The last state to repeal the sodomy laws was Tasmania in 1997. So if you think about that, it's only a few decades ago. In Victoria, that's only 36 years ago. And so do you see how public perception has changed? Moral category, mental category, now it's not even uh, legal anymore. And what we've come now to at this point in our time and life is that he's, it has become not only now a preference that can't be denied, it, it's an identity that's self-defining, and therefore it's now become also a human right that must be defended because this is about love that can't be restricted, and so the lifestyle then must be celebrated. And you see how public perception and society has changed really very quickly over quite a short time. And so you can see why this is so confusing, especially for Christians who do struggle in such a short amount of time, no longer moral, no longer medical, no longer legal, now it's a human right. And so this comment by a psychiatrist, American psychiatrist, he said, from the love that dare not speak its name to the love that can't shut up in barely 25 years. And so it's changed so quickly, so, um, uh, so much as well. And so you can appreciate the confusion there is on how we are meant to think and understand same-sex attraction. And so how are we meant to think about this and understand same-sex attraction as Christians? Well, firstly, it's worth recognizing that if anyone experiences or feels same-sex attraction, it is better to see it as an attraction rather than the identity of the person. I mean, as a younger Christian, I, I couldn't see that distinction and it confused me. It, I, I thought if you're homosexual, then it's wrong. You just can't be you. But this distinction is very helpful. It is better to see this as an attraction rather than the identity of the person. See, it helps bring some clarity. I mean, I don't define myself as a heterosexual person. I don't come up to you when, if we've met the first time, I met a few of you for the first time this evening. I don't come up and say, hi, my name's John and I'm heterosexual. I just don't define myself that way. It might describe me, but it doesn't define me. And so for Christians, it's a subtle distinction, but it's a clarity that we do need. Now, Sam Albury, another Anglican minister from Maidenhead in the UK, he's a, only a few years ago, he came out as same-sex attracted. But he remains celibate, and he tries to honour God living a godly life as a single man, not being sexually active in any way. And he said this, 
It, it sounds clunky to describe myself as someone who experiences same-sex attraction, but describing myself like this is a way for me to recognise that the kind of sexual attractions I experience are not fundamental to my identity. I'm far more than my sexuality. You see, in fact, people weren't labelled by their sexual orientation as either homosexual or gay or lesbian. They weren't defined by their sexual orientation until much later in the 19th century. It's a relatively modern way of understanding people, that we see you as either homosexual or heterosexual. It's quite a modern way of understanding people. In fact, it wasn't even too long ago when the word gay, I grew up in primary school, I don't remember the word gay used, it was not talking about the sexual orientation. It was either a girl's name or it was the experience of being happy. In fact, even today, there's a really nice ice cream called Gay Time. It's pretty good because it makes me happy. You see how the word and the language has changed so quickly. But before the 19th century, no one spoke of a person as either homosexual or heterosexual. Sexuality was understood as a verb, something you did, not something that you are. It's a description of what you do, not a definition of who you are. But of course, now in our society, being gay or lesbian has become a definition of my identity. And often that is also attached to the, the homosexual lifestyle as well. And so what this means then is that it's no longer something I can choose to do or not to do, but it becomes something that I have to be. Do you see that distinction? It becomes something, if it's an identity, it becomes something I have to be. And so you can understand why it can become so personal and so hurtful. If my sexual orientation is who I am, then you really have no right from stopping me from being who I am. And that's why we've seen in this movement that's become um, something was moral, of the moral category to something that's now a right, you can't stop me doing and being who I am. But you see, if it remains a, a description of my attraction and it's not foundational to who I am as a person, then I can choose to whether I act on that attraction or not act on attraction. And as a Christian, I can choose to obey God instead and not act on that attraction because my identity is that I'm more than my sexuality. And so, for example, I love steak. I love meat. It's the only thing I can cook well and it's the only thing I cooked for our anniversary over the last few years and that's all I can do, no greens at all. But my love for meat does not define who I am. It describes what I like. But if I were to take it on as an identity, that is, I am now a carnivore, and that defines who I am, if you do not give me meat to eat, if you invite me over, and you only give me the green stuff like lettuce and salad or whatever green stuff, that's not very tasty, that's offensive because you are denying who I am if I take carnivore as my identity. But if I understand meat eating as an activity that I do, you, you might deny me meat, that's okay. I, I'm, I'm not a carnivore. I enjoy meat, I choose, and I can choose not to eat meat because there are a whole bunch of vegetarians and vegans around me and that's okay. But you are not denying who I am because I'm more than my love for meat. 
Do you see that analogy, that simile? And so, I'm also more than my sexuality. It is an attraction. It does not define me. In fact, in the Bible, the Bible makes very clear that our identity as human beings is something far more deeper, far more significant and far more fundamental. You see, if God is the creator of all human beings and made people gendered, male or female, with purpose and dignity and worth and wonderful design as his image bearers, the pinnacle of creation, and that is our job to reflect God's character in this world and our job to look after this world under God's rule, then what that means is that I'm not only not left to create myself to find my own identity or give myself worth and purpose. It is, in fact, not even my place to define myself, to create my identity. It's only God as creator who has the right to define me. And so, for example, if I find my identity, if I do not believe that God created me and made me in his image, and I try to find my identity in either my sexual orientation or in my wealth or in my happiness, then what that does is that it puts people on different levels of dignity and it puts people on different levels of worth. You see, I'm more worthy because I have more sexual fulfillment. I'm more worthy because I have more happiness. I'm more worthy because I'm richer. And what that actually does is that it diminishes human dignity. It diminishes what our understanding of humanity is meant to be. But if we are to understand and recognize that we are created in the image of God, then that gives us the highest dignity there can be. And so regardless of race, regardless of gender and sexuality and ability and disability and wealth and happiness, or whether someone has autism, or has some mental disability, or depression, or is deaf, or blind, or intersex, or even same-sex attracted. We are all equal before God in dignity and in worth as his image bearers. You see, the image that God gives us, the, the identity that God gives us, gives us the highest dignity there is. You see, this is a God-given dignity, not a man-made identity. And my sexuality is really only an aspect of who I am. You see, that is actually fundamental to understanding what it means to be human. But now for those of you who are Christians, and the invitation is always for all to become Christians, our dignity is not just up here as God's image bearers. We can actually have a relationship with God that is in here, in our heart. And this is the wonderful promise and invitation that Jesus gives. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so then our identity is far more fundamental, far more unchanging than our sexuality. Our identity is not just as God's image bearers, but also as God's children if I belong to God, if I belong to Christ. I'm a child of God, loved by God, cherished by his Son, and if God sees me as his child, then, then my sexual orientation, that, that, that's not how he sees me. It's not like God separates. Here's the heterosexuals, here are the homosexuals, and I love them differently. I'm a child of God. He will love me and cherish me. And that is foundational to who I am. It will never change. 
So do you see how reassuring it is to understand our identity as humans, as people? My dignity does not depend on whether I feel sexually fulfilled or not. My worth and dignity is in the identity that God has given me as his image bearer and also as a child if I belong to him. And so our identity is far more foundational, grounded in God. And same-sex attraction then is just an attraction, not the identity of the person. Very important distinction to keep. But now having said that, if someone is same-sex attracted, is it okay then to act on the same-sex attraction? Well, we know what society says about this. In our society, not only is sexual freedom promoted, but all forms of homosexual lifestyle is also celebrated. In fact, do whatever you want with your body. That is what our world tells us. But then what does the Bible tell us? Now, you might find this very confronting, and you might not agree with it, and that is okay. Glad you are here to hear and to listen. But what does the Bible say? You see, we want to hear what God says and not what I say. According to the Bible, sexual activity of any kind, we heard this quite clearly a few weeks ago when we had the talk on sex, sexual activity of any kind, and that's not just intercourse, it goes way before intercourse, whatever is sexually arousing and stimulating, sexual activity of any kind remains a moral issue. For us Christians, it is still a moral issue. It is not one of preference, and it's certainly not one of rights. Even in marriage, sex is not a right. In our talk a few weeks ago, if you remember, sex is a gift that is given, not a right that is claimed. That's even in marriage. But the Bible is very clear. We are made sexual beings, male or female, and God has designed sex such that there is only one right, moral, good place for sexual expression. And that is within marriage between one man and one woman who are complements and who are committed to each other for life. You see, sex was designed not as a personal need. I might have a personal desire, but desires can be controlled. Need must be fulfilled. But sex was not designed as a personal need. It was designed as a marital need. It is the marriage that needs sex to keep it together. And so if you want to explore that further, let me encourage you, listen to the talk on marriage a few weeks ago and also on sex a few weeks ago. That's online. And so what the Bible makes clear to us is that any form of sexual arousal or stimulation outside of marriage is not just bad and wrong sex. It is still immoral sex. The only good sex in God's good design is marital sex. And so what this means then is that all forms of homosexual activity is a moral thing, not a preference and certainly not something to be celebrated. It does not fit in God's good design for sex and actually just does not fit in God's design of human physiology. Now, I said this a few weeks ago and I spoke to a doctor today, two doctors. The human body was just not designed for homosexual sex. Spoke to these doctors, this is just biology 101. And we know this medically. There are far higher health risks with those who engage in homosexual, the homosexual lifestyle. 
Life expectancy from statistics is about 20 years lower. And a doctor pointed out to me that the sexual health screening needed for those engaged in a homosexual lifestyle is far greater. Far greater, bigger list, lots of checks that need to be done. But for those who only have one sexual partner for life as God has designed it, one man, one woman committed to each other and no one else, what sexual screening is required? Well, nothing, because that's okay. And just to put the consequences in another way, the Bible is actually more plain and blunt about this. It allows no room for question. There are, in fact, eternal consequences that we just can't deny. It is still a moral thing in God's eyes. The Bible says you have no part in the kingdom of God. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we read this. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders will inherit the kingdom of God. Now you look at that verse, that is serious. It is clear, it is plain. And so really I do not understand any Christian who would condone any form of sexual activity, heterosexual, homosexual, outside of marriage. The Bible is clear, God is clear. And so casual sex, one night stands, fooling around while dating or even engaged. Homosexual activity is not a matter of preference, certainly not a matter of rights, nothing to be celebrated. It is still morally wrong. And so this is still about morality, not celebration. And so as a pastor, just don't believe the lies of this world. What's happening in our society is the normalization of what God says is still immoral and is not for our good. But now what does this mean then for Christians who have this struggle? Christians who struggle with same-sex attraction. Well, this is why it is so helpful to see the distinction between the attraction and the identity of the person. You see, whether you are opposite-sex attracted or same-sex attracted, your identity, in fact, does not change. But your attraction can be controlled. Your identity does not change, but your attraction can be controlled. And so having the attraction alone, there's nothing wrong with that. It is not sinful until you act on it. And how do you act on the attraction? Working in you can act on it uh, verbally by, by flirting, visually by imagining things or seeing things, virtually or even physically. It is sinful when you act on it, and really it's the same with opposite sex attraction. You know, I have an attraction that is towards the opposite sex, but that does not mean I give in to that attraction. I am married. I'm called to be faithful to my wife. If I find attraction to anyone else, that is not on. And I do not give in to that attraction. Just like any other temptation, you flee. Anything sexual outside of marriage, according to God, is still wrong. That has not changed. And so what this means is that having the attraction alone is not sin until you act on it in the mind, in the heart, in the flesh. And so that is why you can even have Christian ministers who remain celibate, who remain single, but are godly. They are not giving into their natural inclination. 
They are not giving into what might be painful, unwanted, but they are not sinning because they are not giving into their attraction. And so we heard the story of Etchor, and there are other, many other ministers who remain celibate, wanting to live God's way, not giving into their natural attraction. And so then the big question that people often come up with then is, is same-sex attraction something you're born with or something you grow into? Now, there are arguments on both sides, but either way, it exists because it is the product of this broken and fallen world. Our desires are all distorted. All our desires are distorted in one way or another. A married man who desires to sleep around, he can't give in to that desire. It's a wrong desire. Our desires are all distorted in all sorts of ways. And so the same-sex attracted man or woman desires to act on that attraction. Well, the Bible says, well, you can't. It's a distorted desire. You don't act on that attraction. Just like the temptations that we feel, temptations to be selfish or greedy or vengeful or hateful. I have that temptation. It's wanting to get me to do something and to act on it. But it is not sin until I act upon it. And so when I sense that temptation, what does the Bible say? It says, flee, flee from it, don't give in. But then is someone then, are people born with their attraction or do they grow into it? Well, the answer is no one really knows. And in the end, it actually doesn't matter whether it's by nature or by nurture. If you act on the same-sex attraction, even if it feels so natural, at that point, that's when it becomes wrong and immoral according to God. As difficult as that is to accept, to give in, that's the point where it becomes wrong. And so this is worth us remembering. Though the debates on this topic is about preference or rights, for us as Christians, as people who strive to follow the Lord as his disciples, for us as Christians, just like heterosexual activity outside of marriage, this still remains a moral issue. It is morality, not celebration. But now it must be said that homosexual activity is not the only sin there is according to God and is not necessarily the biggest one at all. If someone says that they're same-sex attracted and you find out, we might think, we might be tempted to think their biggest issue, their biggest problem is their same-sex attraction and therefore the biggest solution that they need is to become opposite sex attracted and so our efforts would then be towards reparative therapy but that's not the case what's the biggest problem of someone who is same-sex attracted it's the same problem with all of us and the problem is that we are rebels in need of mercy we're all sinners in need of forgiveness and so our efforts is not in therapy our efforts should be in proclaiming the christ of the gospel the gospel of Christ, the man God who died for sinners just like you and me. The biggest problem of everyone is not our same-sex attraction or any sexual sin. Our biggest problem is our rebellion and our sin against God. And so what this means is that those who do struggle and those who don't struggle with same-sex attraction, we all need the gospel. We all need Jesus as our saviour. We need to be forgiven as sinners. Now, do you notice in that same verse, I left a few words out. 
It wasn't just the sexually immoral who won't inherit the kingdom of God, but it's also the thieves and the greedy, the drunkard, the, the slanderers, the swindlers. They too will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's not just the only sin there is. It's amongst all these other sins. And so what I want you to hear this evening is that there is salvation, not condemnation. There is the God of heaven and earth who not only made you in his image with the highest dignity there is as a human being, but loves you enough to send his son, who was brutally beaten, who was horrifically crucified, so that he might bear the punishment for all your wrongs. And so whatever mistakes you've made sexually, same sexually, there is forgiveness. And he promises that he cleanses you of all the filth, and the regrets that you might have. However guilty and burdened you might feel, however filthy you might feel, there is forgiveness and cleansing. And why did he do that? So that you might have new life in Christ, where God is our Father, where Jesus is our Savior, where the Holy Spirit is our Comforter, where you have brothers and sisters in Christ. You join a family, and then you have heaven as your eternal home. And so what I want us all to hear is that we're all in the same boat. There is salvation, not condemnation. And so for us who are Christians, we have to remember this. We have to see that we are sinners alike. And same-sex attraction is not the big bad sin out there that we're out to destroy. Rather, there are lost souls out there who need to be saved. And that will mean turn away from their sin. And so what that then means is that your outlook in life is completely changed. If you see that there is salvation in the gospel, if you see that there is a Savior who loves you that much to go to the cross for you, the outlook has changed. There is no need to find your own identity. You're made by God. You've become a child of God, and there is wonderful joy and fulfillment belonging to God. There is great hope and not despair. You see, heaven will be filled not with the sexually immoral. No sexually immoral pe- person will get to heaven. But those who used to be sexually immoral will. Do you notice in that reading, that second reading, verse 11, who will inherit the kingdom of God? And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see, there is a new beginning. If you come to Jesus, there is a new beginning. If God is your Father, the the wonderful hope and confidence for those who turn from their former ways and turn to God. But now, does this mean that those with this attraction will never be able to find sexual fulfillment in this life? Is that what this means? Well, the answer is really the same as the answer that was given last week. It's the same for heterosexual people who never get married, who remain single for their entire life. You see, we're not made, to, we're not made to, for sex. We're not made just to have sex. And we don't need sex to live. We don't need sex to survive. Society teaches us that and, and uh, pushes that way, but it's not the case. But like what I said last week, the longings of sexual intimacy will be superseded in heaven by something far greater. 
that longing will be superseded in heaven when we come to be with our saviour the bridegroom as he is described will be intimately personally loved and cherished by christ for all eternity and that is better than sex that's what the bible teaches us but though there is great hope that is not to say that this life will be easy of course it will be difficult if you have this attraction never to have it satisfied and fulfilled of course that is going to be difficult but listen to the experience of ed shaw he says this for me it is among other things not having the sexual relationship with a man that i long for i do that out of obedience to jesus words here oddly the self self-sacrifice that jesus calls us to ends not only really being self-sacrifice at all it is actually in our own best interest in the long term take up your cross and will be worth it in the end refuse to sacrifice something and you will lose everything in the end jesus is beginning a stark warning here whether or not we follow his life of suffering is a great indicator of our eternal destiny and so he recognizes obeying jesus is far better the outcome in the long term will be far greater there is the eternal destiny to worry about and so if you are a christian and it remains a struggle which i suspect it will well how are you meant to see this struggle well you are to see this struggle like carrying your cross as a disciple i'm going to deny myself and my attraction and my desires and i'm going to obey jesus to be more like christ means we will suffer more like christ and for some don't know why but for some this might be the way god has chosen for you to carry your cross to deny yourself and to follow christ it's a little bit like the apostle paul he pleaded that god will remove this this thorn in the flesh whatever that was god could have done so but god didn't god decided that for his godliness that for his christ's likeness god kept a thorn in the flesh so that paul would learn that god's grace is sufficient in his weakness perhaps that's why god left that desire there and so for some god in his mighty wisdom who loves you like nothing and always works for your good has allowed you to struggle with that and it might be lifelong just like the thorn and is to produce good in you it is to produce a christ likeness in you but then some would ask can't god change the sexual orientation of those who struggle well what do you think well of course god can god can do anything just like when people suffer cancer can god cure cancer of course he can he can do whatever he likes can god cure chronic illness of course god can it's easy for god to do so but the reality is that god might not for god in his wisdom has decided that maybe for the godliness of some like that thorn in the flesh that will be the cross you bear for your life but things can change it is not promise sam albury another anglican minister who's celibate he said this change in this life is possible but not promised so we could not presume that it could uh, could ever happen or that it must happen 
We must learn to trust God who knows the end from the beginning and always does precisely what is right. You see, of course God can change, and that, is, that should be the prayer. But just like if I'm sick and want God to cure me instantly, God might in his wisdom decide otherwise. And so do you see that simile there? And so for those who are same-sex attracted, just like the rest of us, there is hope in the gospel, there is not despair. The future might be difficult, but it will be bright because there is the eternity in our eternal home. There's hope, not despair. And hopefully now there is some needed clarity on this topic of same-sex attraction. We need it, and hopefully there is. But I do want to end now with some practical implications of what this means, firstly for us as a church, and also for us as individuals. And so as a church, as a church, we must see this church, the gathering of the people here, more like a hospital for the sick rather than a catwalk for the beautiful. You see, in speaking on this topic, I speak not as one who has all my life in order and I've got it all sorted out, and so I speak to you as someone who's better, not at all. But I speak as one who is also sinful, in need of mercy, in need of forgiveness, just like one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. You see, the church is meant to be a hospital for the sick. You see, we all have past we regret. We all have different and various struggles. We have things that we are ashamed of and will not see the light of day, whether that is same-sex attraction or something else. But Jesus says in our first reading, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And that is what our church must be like. Forgiveness for sinners, grace for the undeserving, healing for the broken. It is a hospital for the sick, not a catwalk for the beautiful. And so when we meet each week, we're not here to look competent and beautiful and impressive and hide all our flaws and faults with these fake makeup. That's not what the church is for. We are to be transparent with one another. And so what that means then for us to consider is that if anywhere in this world, anywhere in this world is safe for those with same-sex attraction to be loved, to be welcomed, to live under the guidance and wisdom of God, where is that place? Where well, has to be the church. It has to be the safest place, not just for the same-sex attracted, but of course for all the broken of this world. The community, the fellowship that we have here, the deep intimacy in our fellowship and friendship, it doesn't have to be sexualized, but it's deep and it's intimate and it's for all. I mean, wouldn't this be great for our church? That if there is such openness amongst us, that if someone was to share that they are struggling with same-sex attraction, our fingers won't be pointing, our minds won't be condemning, but our words will be encouraging with the words of God. Our hearts will be praying that that person will grow in Christ's likeness and that our lives will be sharing in deep, intimate friendship. You see, our church is a hospital for the sick, not a catwalk for the beautiful. That is for us to know. And finally, for all of us, there must be love, not fear. I mean, the rhetoric of the media is that Christians are homophobic. That cannot be true. That must not be true 
And that, I hope, is not true for any one of us here tonight. You see, we must love, just as we've been loved much by Christ. We are no less broken, and how wrong is it for any one of us to feel that we're above or superior to anyone else? But we must love with open arms. We're no less broken. We must love with open arms, just as God has opened his arms to us. And how wonderful would it be if our love is so obvious that people who are struggling will not struggle alone, but yet they would confide in you their struggles and you in them your own struggles for us to listen to each other, to love each other, to cry, to pray for each other, and of course to share in this deep intimate relationship and friendship that God has called us to. But I must say to love genuinely, to love the way God loves is to also speak the truth in love, to speak the truth even when it hurts. And so if someone who is heterosexual and is sleeping with his boyfriend or girlfriend, what do I say? Oh, if that's your heart desire, go for it. Well, of course not. The loving thing is you need to stop that if you are to obey God. You need to stop that if you want to live a life that's for your good and for that person's good. You need to stop that if you want to get to heaven. You need to show your faith by your actions. You see, we need to love. Even when the truth hurts, we need to say it. To love genuinely is to love the way God loves. Never to condone anything, but to have all our desires and wills and action aligned to the will of God. But we have to remember, and we have to remember this seriously, when someone does share that they are same-sex attracted, we don't stigmatize it like it's the biggest and worst and unforgivable sin. We are sinners alike. We need the gospel life. We must remember that. And so tonight, if you do struggle, hopefully this is something that you'll find you'll be able to speak about in our church amongst the people here. It's a road that you never have to walk alone. You have us as brothers and sisters in Christ. But I want to end reminding that if you do struggle, please find someone so that you don't walk this road alone. Someone to love you, to pray for you, to keep you accountable. And do remember that this God, our Father, has not stopped loving you. This God is still powerfully in control of your circumstance and the situation you're in. And this God has certainly not left you alone. You have God as Father, you have Christ as Saviour, you have the Spirit as comforter, and you have us as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so let us remember, we're not a hospital. Uh, we're a hospital for the sick, not a catwalk. And we must love, not fear. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the clarity you do give us in your word, which is unchanging, which shows your moral standard, which shows what is good for us in this world. And so we pray, Lord, that you help us all to align our wills and desires and life as you have designed it. We know there is much confusion with same-sex attraction, and there has been much hurt and pain when people aren't loved and cared. But we do pray, Lord, that this is not the case here. We pray for those who do struggle, that they will see the love you have towards them, that their identity is one who bears your image and one who is your child. 
But we pray, Lord, that you will help us draw near to each other as we draw near to you, where there is forgiveness for the past, where there is hope for the future. And we pray also, Lord, for us as a church, that we will always be loving, never condoning what you don't condone, but loving as we have been loved. And so we pray, Lord, that you'll mightily work in all of us, seeing that you are our Father, Christ is our Saviour, and the Spirit as our Comforter. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Thank you, John, for that clarity. And thank you for everyone who's listening and the great questions that you sent in. Unfortunately, we only have time for two tonight. But please, uh, John would love to keep talking and uh, we would love to keep discussing as well. So come and talk to him, discuss amongst each other after service as well. The first question uh, we, were, we thought we'd, that someone asked was, is it wrong for a Christian struggling with same-sex attraction to seek an opposite-sex spouse and family, or should this be encouraged? If so, how should someone struggling with this go about seeking a Christian spouse? That's a very good question. So, so God can change the attraction and the orientation. God can do that. And what you find is that um, it's a, a spectrum. Some can some can't and some do but still have the attraction to the same sex and so there's no one rule fits all but it's certainly possible but if there is marriage it must be based on the marriage vows i'm committed to you only for life and and if that person can genuinely and honestly say that then go for it now what you find is there's a wonderful website called uh, livingout.org it's on the outline. And if you go to that, there are a few testimonies of some who remain same-sex attracted as a Christian and don't see themselves changing, hoping that God might, but they might not. But there is also another story of a guy who was same-sex attracted, but found and discovered, like without knowing, that he was attracted to a particular girl of the opposite sex. And they ended up getting married, having children. And he's open about his struggle. He still finds that sometimes he's attracted to same sex, but does not give into it. But that was possible. So there's no one rule fits all. It is possible. And if it's possible, why not? But the marriage must be still based on those marriage vows. If you keep it, if you can keep it, get married. No, that's good. Thanks, John. And the final question we'll ask is uh, from this verse here. Uh, what business is it for mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? Yeah. So what, struggle, uh, what standing do we have to tell non-Christians that they are wrong or that they should per se vote? No, yeah. with the Protestants. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's, a, it's a very good question because it's relevant to our current debate. The reality is that anyone can do whatever they like. You want to steal? Go for it. You want to live a homosexual lifestyle in a sense go for it but if i know the person and i really want to be loving towards the person i want to encourage what god says Um, but in this climate and this debate why is it that as a christian i think we should be voting no it's because we have a responsibility as citizens so as citizens we're responsible and we should be vocal for the good of society not just for our good but really for the good of society and that's why we have a responsibility as citizens who happen to be christians um so we're not in a sense in a sense in the world marriage uh, people do whatever they want sexually people do whatever they want i mean they can't they're free to do that but as christians i only call that a christian you, you shouldn't do that for them they do whatever they want but if i know them and i love them i still want to point them to what god says because that's also for their good not just for our good 
Thank you. Ah, thanks, John.